You're listening to the Rua Space Podcast. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Rua Space Podcast, where we look to make space for the Holy Spirit in our everyday lives. I'm Phil, and today I am joined by Dr. Lauren Artress, the founder of Veritas, an author, and an expert in labyrinths. And we have just a beautiful conversation about this container, this tool, this practice of the labyrinth. And you might have no idea what a labyrinth is. You may have never thought of one before, but I have to tell you, it has a lot to offer. Ultimately, Lauren guides us into the labyrinth as a metaphor for our lives. It is really an invitation to practice prayer, to enter into the present moment, to fully embody this journey we are on in life. So she takes us through some of the history. She introduces how to engage the labyrinth and the role of imagination. She shares some stories, including her own story of coming to the labyrinth. And then, and this is one of the things I'm really excited about, she talks about finger labyrinths, which is so cool because not all of us may have a labyrinth nearby, although she does give you a site where you can check out and there may actually be a church or a location with one. But this is is a practice you can literally do on a piece of paper or even on the app that they created. The labyrinth is this place, this invitation to encounter ourselves, to encounter God, and just to embody this journey. So I'm really excited you're here for this conversation, friends. I pray that you are blessed, challenged, and encouraged by my conversation with Dr. Lauren Artress. Dr. Lauren Artress, welcome to the Rua Space Podcast. It's an honor to have you. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. So let's kick it off. If you can kind of introduce yourself to the audience, and we will just jump right into talking about labyrinths. Sure. Uh, it's a fun topic for sure. Uh, I've been uh, working with labyrinths since 1991. Uh, I was canon pastor of Grace Cathedral at that point. And in 1987 was the first real visible sign of anyone dying of AIDS. And, of course, that increased from there. And so by 91, I was at that place saying, man, I got to get out of here. This isn't my work. I was burnt out four years doing programming, uh, visiting the sick, uh, burying the dead. And um, the labyrinth kind of floated into my life. Uh, It came through Jean Houston. Uh, I went to one of her workshops, and she uh, put out a big uh, kind of taped labyrinth on the floor, and that was my first time walking it. I had oddly knew what a labyrinth was, uh, but uh, but not really. I hadn't walked it before, and so that was my first time walking it. And then, you know, I went. I I say this as you know, in walking a sacred path, and I had a really significant dream that night. And uh, it kind of guided me toward, okay, there's something really important here. And so I went back to the cathedral. And, and when I went to uh, Jean Houston's workshop, I had one question on my mind because I thought I was leaving Grace Cathedral. And the question was, what's my next step? 
And that's a great labyrinth question. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's a great labyrinth question. So when I came back to Grace Cathedral, I was on a kind of a one-month uh, sabbatical there. I thought, wow, you know, actually, I, I thought it was all about the content from what Jean was talking about. But um, it took me about three months. And after walking that field, it was uh, like the hound of heaven got set loose. It was following me really close. But I, every time I turned to turn around and see it, it wasn't there. <laughs> and so it was hunting me down. There was some idea I couldn't think about. I couldn't let the thought in. Some idea. And finally, literally, I'm walking in my living room in a circle and saying, what is it? What is it? And then I remember saying very loudly, what is it? And in dropped the thought, put the labyrinth in the cathedral. So I'm one of the lucky people. I happen to have a cathedral handy. Yeah, yeah that helps. <laughs> <laughs> it helps a lot. It helps a lot. And so then we began our work. Um, sorry about that. No we began our work opening it New Year's Eve. We had the 24-hour event called Singing for Your Life, and this was with Bobby McFerrin. And so we opened the labyrinth then, and a uh, 24-hour event, we had probably about 5,000 people come through the cathedral, and many, many, many people walked the labyrinth. Wow. And ever since then, you've just been sharing the labyrinth with more and more people. Right. Yeah, there's a real hunger for it, uh, a lot because it quiets the mind much easier. And that was my big discovery. Um, I, I feel and often describe myself as a, a failed meditator. Mm. You know, and what that implies is sitting meditation. Right. So walking, when you're walking and in a walking meditation, the mind quiets down because, you know, instead of, I often describe it like you're kind of trying to take a volleyball and hold it underwater, and then eventually <laughs> your arms really get tired, and boom, up comes the, the uh, you know, force of it. And that was like trying to quiet my mind. It would just then kick in. And so moving the body, moving my body, really made a difference. And that's why the labyrinth is a great way for the busy monkey mind, Western mind to get grounded and get into quiet. Yeah, well, we're embodied people, right? Where our God created our bodies and called them good. So I, I am really learning more and more the importance of uniting body with mind and spirit, not just saying, oh, I can do all this in our mind, but we've got to include our bodies in it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And in fact, we have to get past the thinking mind. We have to get into a place where we're in an integrated place where we can have our thoughts moving through our mind, yes, but not necessarily latching onto them. Unless, of course, it's a really important thought, and then, but that's, that's sort of advanced. You have to kind of know when, oh, wow, no, wait, this is, this is something I need to pursue. And then in the labyrinth walk, you can pursue that. Absolutely. So we'll spend a little time talking about the labyrinth and how to approach one and what it does. But let's begin, before going into that, let's dive a little bit into the history of the labyrinth. I know you've done a deep dive into this. It's history in the world a little bit, and then um, even in the Christian tradition. Can you kind of enter us into that world? Certainly, uh, certainly. Well, uh, understand the labyrinth that I uh, foremostly work with, which I consider my heart song is the one 
from Chartres Cathedral in France, and it has two names. Uh, the 11th Circuit Medieval Labyrinth is the formal name. The nickname is the Chartres-style labyrinth. But even before that, I want to go back earlier in time, is that there's another very important labyrinth called the Classical Seven Circuit Labyrinth. And this, really, uh, the date is probably still being sorted out. At least 2,500 years of age, probably more like 5,000 years of age. Wow. They're found originally in petroglyphs. So carved in the rock, the, the classical design, and you understand that the labyrinth isn't a maze, so that's why I'm using the word circuits. It's, it has one path, uh, really one path. It's important. And Yes, it is. Yes, it is, because it's a common um, error to think that a labyrinth is a maze. And they're actually quite opposite one another. Uh, the maze is designed for you to lose your way. It has cul-de-sacs and dead ends and many exits and many entrances. And so it creates that feeling of kind of a cognitive puzzle to sort out. A labyrinth has one path, and the seven-circuit labyrinth, the classical labyrinth, the earliest labyrinth, has, goes around the center seven times. And then the medieval 11-circuit uh, labyrinth goes around 11 times. And so the patterns are different. Uh, Probably the classical labyrinth, the earliest labyrinth, was found in the Celtic tradition, for sure. Um, it's also could be a, a, possibly in the Jewish tradition. Uh, it certainly is found throughout different cultures around the world. So it's not uh, unusual to see petroglyphs in Spain and petroglyphs in Ireland and petroglyphs in, in uh, South America. And they didn't even have email attachments in those days. <laughs> So that's one of the one of the kind of mysteries about it is that well how did this happen, uh, and we really actually don't know the answer to that. So, so so what is it that people are tapping into then when they're tapping into this structure? Well, they're they're tapping into I think a brain map. Uh, you can see it in both labyrinths, but the the uh, Chart style labyrinth, the Eleventh Circuit Medieval, which came later. You see, so the classical labyrinth was not necessarily found in medieval cathedrals, but of the 80 cathedrals that went up in the Middle Ages, 23 of them had labyrinths. Uh, most of them were Chartres-style labyrinths, meaning 11th Circuit medieval labyrinths. And um, it's very circuitous, as you know. It has 28 180-degree turns. So you're moving in a clockwise spiral pattern as you're walking in. And I would call it a complicated or complex spiral because you're always backing, going back. It seems like you're going, I'm not going to center, I'm just going back and switch <laughs> these switch paths. Which know. is part of the journey. <laughs> That's part of the journey. That's right. That's right. And so what you're tapping into there, I think, is a brain map in one hand. I think the structure is very important. The structure, I think, was created by people who understood uh, practices far deeper and profound than we know now. And when you step into a labyrinth, then you begin to move and your, your mind quiets. You're also focused, you know, because the classical labyrinth, but also more so the medieval labyrinth, uh, is complicated. So you need to focus. 
And it's sort of the old adage of, you know, give your mind something to do. So it quiets in that way. Absolutely. So when you enter into a labyrinth, then tell us what what do we do with this with this harmonious walk with this circuitous path? What what is the what is the intention? What are we invited to do? Well, you're invited to simply follow your natural pace. I think that's part of when we talk about we need to include the body in our prayers. We need to include include the body in our practices uh, in order to quiet the mind. When you begin to walk into a labyrinth, uh, you just simply find your natural pace. We we talk about it in the pattern of the th- what's called the three R's. Um, in our religious language, it's also uh, early on I used the language of, um, of uh, Teresa of Avila, purgation, illumination, and union. But the three R's kind of capture that. When you're walking in, you just begin, let yourself come home to yourself. Just release as much as you can. Just release anything that's kind of in your way or whether you have to pick the cat up at the bed or all of that. Just let that go. Now, that's not always easy, and that's where other practices, any practice that you've learned from other traditions or other practices, such as a breath practice, then use your breath. If you've done uh, centering prayer and you have a sacred word to repeat, bring that into the labyrinth in your process, and that's part of the beauty of it. But I think the real way of uh, allowing yourself to be present in the labyrinth is following your natural pace. And so your first R is receiving. It's the, in this little thumbnail template I'm giving you. Uh, then when you wind up in the center, finally, that's the second stage. You've emptied so you can receive. I have no idea what a person receives uh, because it's unique to each person. It's fascinating. And of course, if, if people are, you know, sometimes you, you can walk into a labyrinth and you can get bombarded with thoughts because the labyrinth, the field of labyrinth is so powerful, it can set off lots and lots of thoughts. Uh, and hopefully you can release those in the center. And if not, uh, my recommendation would be to walk the labyrinth several times in a row. So when you're in the center, just to complete the three R's here, you follow the same path back out, which is then the third R which is return, you're returning, but there's a lot of RE's. You're re, you can be resolving, reclaiming, uh, certainly remembering, reflecting. There's lots that happens on that kind of archetypal return path. I think that's beautiful. And as you mentioned, purgation, illumination, and union, kind of this idea of um, the way in purging, becoming present, allowing yourself really to become present to the voice of the Spirit. And then when you meet in, when you find the middle, fully present to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, really receiving yes. what God might be saying. What If you came in with a question, is there a way to to respond to it or, or hear an answer? And then union, and this really stuck with me, as you're walking back out, it is in a sense preparing you to take it out into the world, right? That's you're right. integrating back together. That's right. That's right. And there's other ways of walking the labyrinth. There's a processional way where, oddly, uh, people walk out the back. Uh, but really, the labyrinth pattern, that's more in France uh, that that happens. And partly, probably, uh, I think it's important to say that um, most labyrinths uh, from the Middle Ages, there's only three that exist now, and, uh, and Chartres 
and uh, Chart Cathedral as well as uh, San Quentin Cathedral. They're the only two in the original form. And then they got lost over the ages, just to kind of bring in some more history here, that they were destroyed, uh, partly because the floors wore out of these great cathedrals, but also uh, people got frightened as as we moved away from practices. As you know, there was a time when the church really dismissed all their practices. And that's then cut short any kind of real receiving of, of, of divine voice, receiving God's guidance and direction. And so the labyrinth fell into disuse for, for centuries. And in short, it was probably closed right after the French Revolution. And so this, all that's happening now is really, as your work is, reclaiming that there's some really important practices that we can use for ourselves to quiet our mind so we can hear that still small voice within. Let's dive into that because I think you said something really important there about the loss of practices. And I know in your book, Walking a Sacred Path, you go into the sort of false dichotomy, if you will, between rationality and imagination. And the idea that we, especially nowadays, we often think of ourselves as brains on sticks, right? Like Descartes' statement, <laughs> I, I think, therefore I am. Well, well, great. So I'm, I'm first and foremost a thinking thing. And as long as I can think it in my brain, then I'm okay. But there's really meant to be this imagination element that we're invited to reclaim. So can you share with us the importance of the imagination and what the labyrinth does or how we can bring our imagination to the labyrinth? Oh, sure. That's a wonderful question. Um, let me start by saying that I think sometimes when we're doing a practice, and that could be yoga, and at Grace Cathedral we do yoga on the labyrinth. We have 500 people turn up. So. Oh, I love it. <laughs> It's really quite lovely and amazing. Um, but when you are doing a practice, oftentimes our minds are so busy, we need to just, you know, it's almost like pulling a plug on a swimming pool. Just let it drain out. Just let it drain to be quiet and have it just be in a quiet stream. And often I say, when you walk into the labyrinth, you, you never step into the same river twice. And, of course, in, in our rich Christian tradition, uh, we have talked about the cataphatic path and the apathetic path. The apathetic path being the path of silence and emptiness and the cataphatic path uh, being one of images and allowing yourself to really visit that. And so I think both – actually, I think they meet as I say in walking a sacred path, you know, the apathetic path, you can be entire, entirely silence and imi no images, and then boom, an image may come in. And on the other cataphatic path, that, and, and then if an image comes in, you drop into silence. On the cataphatic path, you're working with images, and then they can disappear or dissipate. And so, the labyrinth lends itself very well, especially to the cataphatic path. It, it, both, really. I don't want to limit it. But for me and my personal use, I would often use it and do use it as just stepping into the stream and letting, yes, letting thoughts go, letting them just flow through my mind, uh, just kind of emptying in that way. And I think that's an important thing to do because then you are free to do other practices. Let's talk about 
uh, taking a question in the labyrinth as we focus on imagination. So you, uh, as, so if you're really flooded with lots of thoughts, I would recommend walking the labyrinth once just to kind of empty. And then uh, come back at the entrance again, and you might have a question that you're carrying in your heart. And uh, often people do. And sometimes you, they don't know they have the question <laughs> until they get into the labyrinth, right? Uh, but but say you have a question, and, and like, for instance, what's my next step is a great question. You might be considering a job in another city. You might be uh, struggling with what do I do with, uh, you know, of course now with us uh, in these times of being sheltered in place, it raises lots of questions about how do I do such and such? How do I work with my children at home? Or you know, All of that. And then you just, I would encourage people to take the question into the labyrinth and just turn it over, imagine it. For instance, imagine that you do take that job in such and such a city that's a thousand miles away. You try it on in your imagination. You try it on and just imagine yourself there. Uh, imagine what your house would be. Imagine you, you did a job interview at a certain office and you would be going there daily. Just try it on. And then there's a part, especially when you get to center, just let yourself be quiet. And what it does is, you know, the intuition and the imagination are really wedded. They're very close to one another, and they work together well uh, when we're not flooded with other kind of distracting, extraneous thought. So that would be one way to use imagination. Other times, people see images or understand, um, you know, one woman I remember years ago, walked into the center and saw uh, the Sacred Heart. And this was not in her tradition. So she didn't understand, wow, what am I seeing? A bleeding heart here? And what is, what is this? And uh, then began to use that as a way of exploring meditation and the tradition of the Sacred Heart. So uh, that's one way. Another way is that the imagination speaks in metaphor. Now, lots of uh, people, you know, when we're in deconstructing mode, we're trying to deconstruct, and the imagination is, you know, kind of taking a hit on that as well. Um, but the imagination really uh, can, can work for us. And so there's a teaching that use everything that happens in the labyrinth as a metaphor. And so when you're seeing metaphorically, the, the path of the labyrinth becomes our path through life. Pilgrimage, yes, journey. So everything that happens in the labyrinth, use it as a metaphor. Use it as a metaphor. For instance, if someone's on a turn in life, they usually have a very strong reaction to the turns in the Chart Labyrinth. And, you know, it's like, okay, uh, I hate these turns. There's 28 of them, as I mentioned. <laughs> And people can have a strong reaction. Uh, but also then you can teach yourself how to use the terms. Uh, you use the terms. I remember one woman coming up recently and saying, you know, I learned something in the labyrinth. I learned that when you're making a turn, you need to slow down. Wow, yeah. And, you know, that's just a, it's sort of a, of course, duh, but not really. Because that teaching was embodied in her then. Yes. It wasn't a, it wasn't extraneous. It was hers. I like that. You know, that's often what I, when in, in practices, labyrinth yoga, other embodied practices, I think, as you talk about in your book, it's, it's a container. 
Um, and so it, it's a place where we can explore those things creatively. And so I know for me, one of the things I've experienced is um, feeling like I'm getting close to the center and then it starts to go back out again, right? Or right. or you, you come back close to where you entered in. And it, with those different things, as you said, just becoming a metaphor for is am I like I literally feel it like am I feeling something here because this is where I'm at and then what does it mean just to keep walking and and I think that that's a really important connection to pilgrimage then mm -hmm. and I know you really dive into that as well that the labyrinth is um, sort of metaphorical for this pilgrimage of faith that we're all on it's a mm -hmm. walk a journey we're all going through right and we're all in it together which we're learning for sure yes. um, right now as well and that's why uh, it's that's why people i think during our time of sheltered in uh place that people are using finger meditation tools um, and there's a lot of labyrinths out there that people can go to i'll, I'll give a, a website uh which is called the labyrinth locator you can just google labyrinth locator and then you come up with a directory and put your city in. don't do a too narrow of a search but a broad search um, and uh, the Chicago area, there's a lot of uh, a lot of labyrinths for sure. Well, and um, something something you mentioned there, if I can interrupt because I don't want to sure. lose this point. Um, if you don't have a, a cathedral on hand, like you, like you mm -hmm. mentioned earlier, um, it, it kind of explain then because I think for most people they might say, yeah, I don't, you know, I, shelter in place for example. If I want to practice this during this time, or um, I have small children, it's hard to go downtown, for example, of my nearest city. Can you talk about finger labyrinths a little bit? Because I sure. think that's an amazing thing. There's even an app that, that you guys have where you can do it on your phone. So That's right. Mm -hmm. So can you talk about the differences, but as well as what you can do with the finger ones? Sure. Because uh, the, the finger ones are a great way to not only learn about the labyrinth, but uh, certainly to, to quiet the mind. I think it's beneficial to be able to have walked a, la a large style labyrinth, but maybe not. I remember early on I was communicating with uh, someone in prison, an inmate in prison up in Vacaville, and uh, I had a um, you know a little stamp for uh, on my letterhead, and the prisoner traced it with a toothpick. Oh wow! And and really found meaning and focus in that. So finger meditation tools. Originally we we started out making them about 18 inches across, so a full human finger can fit in kind of in a grooved space and they're all now all different sizes and you can simply you can go on the Veriditas website so and just download a, a paper one and print it out so there's lots of ways to get a finger meditation tool and actually we're doing a webinar because um, the organization I, cre I created that started at Grace Cathedral Veriditas um, is uh, doing many different programs so people can get finger meditation tools. But one of the things important about finger meditation tools, you can use any size, you can do any style. Uh, and actually there is a, um, called the Labyrinth Sand Kit, uh, put out under Tuttle, which has both the Chart style and the uh, classical labyrinth in it. And that, you can get that on, on Amazon. The one thing that's important, Phil, is to walk the labyrinth, finger labyrinth, walk it with your fingers, with your non-dominant hand. Okay. Your non-dominant hand. Because then what you're doing is breaking all the habits of 
you know, we're used to using our right hand or our left, but I'm right-handed. And, yeah. and the change to my left hand, it's a very different experience. And then it's a very different experience to use each different finger. And maybe not all at once. I mean, you come back to it another day and then you use a different finger, whatever works. But they're very, very effective. They're very effective. And especially now, we really are, for those of us sheltered in place without a labyrinth nearby. Now, I'm lucky, and uh, I think many people are lucky and don't know it, that they, there's, you know, there's over 7,000 labyrinths in, in the world now that are active and being walked. Wow. And so I would encourage people to go on the labyrinth locator and see if there's a labyrinth nearby. I have a labyrinth nearby that's not crowded. And if somebody is, because of social distancing, if someone's walking the labyrinth, then let them finish and then you can walk the labyrinth. And um, you can even gain insight from watching them walk, right? That's right. That's right. I, I always thought, you know, oh, gosh, there's a line. And then, you know, because I've always worked mostly with larger groups. And uh, that happened actually in the very first time we opened it in Grace Cathedral is there was a line six hours long. No, oh. no, no kidding. And, and we had one article out. And uh, and I kept saying to people, come on, you, you, there's food downstairs. And there are different activities. Um, and they just stayed glued there. And then I realized, ah. They're watching and being present, probably witnessing is a better word, because uh, it's soft-eyed. They're, they're soft-eyed. They're not watching hard-eyed. They're, <laughs> they're taking it in and benefiting from it. So if someone does a finger labyrinth or something, do you have a uh, length of time you might recommend, like setting a timer on a phone or something like that? No, I don't. Um, and that's true of the large walkable ones as well. It depends on how long you choose to stay in the center. And how slow you walk. You know, some people in a, in a Buddhist practice would do one step with one breath. Well, that, walking a full-size shark, you'd be there all afternoon, Yeah, <laughs> frankly. But uh, it's a third of a mile or something? Yeah, okay. just about. Mm -hmm. Most labyrinths, most shark labyrinths, they're about 36 feet across. Um, the ones in Shark Cathedral, the one there, is 42 feet across, including the lunations. Um, the one at uh, the outdoor one at Grace Cathedral, because we have two. I don't know if you've been to Grace Cathedral, but the one outdoors is 40 feet across and uh, diagonal and um, circumference rather. And the in indoor one is 34 uh, feet, six inches. So I'm going to invite you to talk to Phil from, let's say, 15 years ago. OK, so or maybe 12 years ago. And. This Phil would have said, that is extremely boring. It is just a walk. I'm not going to feel anything. I don't want to feel something. It's um, this idea of visualization or a metaphor for life. I want to just study and read a book. What would you have said to that Phil? How would you have encouraged him and challenged him? Well, I could say that this Phil, you've come a long way. <laughs> you've come a long way. Um, there's there's a lot of people in that position and in that place, um, and especially one of the things you said that jumped out at me when you were describing yourself 15 years ago is uh, you don't want to feel anything. Mm. You know that we have uh, that our traditions, you know, in a sense, have failed us until just recently. I mean, we're we're living in a really important and wonderful time when the fact that we are reclaiming our spiritual practices. 
So I would say to that person, well, if you don't feel like walking it, don't walk it. Uh, I'd also say, you know, if there's a time, you know, you get a, a phone call that upsets you or or you have family coming into the city, you know, that's a great thing to do. Go take your family and walk it at Grace Cathedral. You know, more that way because because uh, you you know you can't you can lead a horse to water but you can't have them make them drink you know absolutely true is there something maybe you would say um, let's say they have a spouse or significant other who then says we are going to do this <laughs> and so they agree to do it um, is there maybe a question they could ask themselves or something they could ponder to say okay I'm gonna do this. But I don't know how because I haven't had this type of experience. Is there maybe a basic question or a basic invitation to say, maybe try it? Or even if you're going to try this on the Finger app at home, here's just an introductory invitation for how to do it your first time. That's right. Well, yes. What I, I describe it as, as I say, go in open. Go in open. Uh, don't expect, uh, you know, or don't lay on yourself an agenda because often someone beginning might, oh, I got to ask a question. Oh, you know, or, you know, just go in open. And I describe it like, I don't know if you remember, but I do. The first time I walked into the ocean, you know, when my family came all the way out to California, we went to the beaches and there, you know, you, and it's like, wow, I don't know how old I must have been six years old or seven or, but I still remember the experience because you're walking in, you're feeling the temperature of the water. You're kind of feeling, oh, a sandy bottom, well, that's all right, okay, ah. Oh. And what it does is it takes you into the sensate level. Hmm. And and that can be very helpful. And then, I, of course, anybody who's uh, tried, and that's often why it, I think it's helpful for me to describe myself as a failed meditator because, you know, a lot of people go, I ask, and the people go, oh, how many failed meditators here? And, you know, <laughs> two-thirds of the group will raise their hands. Uh, and so there's also that feeling, too, that to get over, oh, this thing isn't going to work for me. Mm. And, and actually, I, um, my, early on, I thought, oh, this isn't a maze. This is going to be boring. And then you realize, oh, okay, wow, this is, this is a real journey. Yeah. And sometimes you see people walk in and take, oh, you know, 15 steps or so and stop. And then start tracing the path with, and their, you know, in their eyeballs, kind of looking like, oh, how's this? Because because it's hard to uh, maintain the feeling that you don't know where you're going. Oh, I'm going to get lost. Oh, you know, that's so life. I, yeah, that's life. That's right, and that's why you use everything that happens in the labyrinth as a metaphor. Yes, and and and, and that's why I love about it being one path in and one path out. That we're really invited to sort of trust and say. This isn't licensed to say, oh, I can just do anything in my life, whatever. It doesn't matter. But there is a sense to say, wherever you are, you can sort of trust that God is with you. And when we are present and open to the guidance of the Holy Spirit, God will guide us to the center, if you will. That path will continue that we might feel like we're lost but God has this wider perspective. And I think it's almost like Jesus is right there with us saying, hey, I know this is confusing, but keep walking with me. And this is a good path. That's right. That's right. Well, and the wonderful uh, teaching from our scripture about, you know, have to lose your way to find your way. And that's, boy, is that in the labyrinth. And even if you're not losing your way, so you can, you can lose your way in a labyrinth, uh, especially these are pavement labyrinths or flat to the floor. There's no walls. Um, 
in them, and there's just a field you can see across the whole labyrinth. Well, you still can get lost. If you lose your concentration, <clears throat> you can go off the path and not know it. Yeah. And But even if that doesn't happen, it still produces this, oh, my God, where am I going? Where is this thing? When, you know, when am I going to get to center? And like you mentioned, the center comes up really quickly. Mm. But you're not going into the center. You're going past it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, and in, in fact, there's a wonderful paradox that the closer you are to the center, the further you are from the center. Oh, on man. The path. <laughs> <laughs> the further you're away from the center on the outer, what I would call the grand sweep, you're quite close to the getting into the center. So it's paradoxical. Something good to ponder there. So can you share with us maybe something you've learned on the labyrinth recently, either about the labyrinth or something that's happened? Because I know you've been doing this for decades, right? And so yes. has there been something recently where you say, oh, I hadn't seen it that way before. I hadn't thought about it that way. Well, uh, a little while back, someone came up and said, well, I walked the labyrinth, but then I hit the dead end. And I'm thinking, <laughs> dead end? <laughs> dead end? You know, that's the center. <laughs> that's good. And I never thought of ca calling it that way. Uh, you know, I, I never did. And so that was one interesting but thing. But people really, um, I, I love that my work is holding this wonderful container for people. And when people are ready, and they don't know they're ready, but the, the, but spiritually there's something cooking in them and stirring, then often people find a labyrinth. And in fact, in, in the labyrinth work, the, a question developed over the years, did you find the labyrinth or did the labyrinth find you? And that's a good question. For me, I would say both. I knew I was looking for something. I didn't know what it was, but I had that question. What's my next step? And you're guided by the question. And, you know, you're guided on the path to find the answers. Yeah, I think it's a beautiful tool. It's a, uh, it's a beautiful space where we can hold our questions, where we can walk in God's presence, where we can really become present. So, as we come toward the end here, do you have any final words of encouragement or challenge for people uh, who either might be considering to start a labyrinth practice or have been doing it for a while? Maybe just some final words. Sure. Well, let me give our website because there's a ton of information on it and it's Veriditas. So it's V-E-R-I-D-I-T-A-S dot org. And I'll put that in the show and, notes. Okay, that'd be great because... Um, there, there's, you know, lots of instruction and speaking to beginners, speaking to people about practices and all. Um, I would say uh, give it a try, especially if you're brand new to it and you're struggling with a practice. Uh, and the beauty is now that there's so many choices of practices. But if practices, some practice, yoga or something else is not working for you, centering prayer, mandala drawing. And we're really lucky, aren't we? <laughs> so, we are. Um, so find, find a labyrinth or go to the website, download a printable uh, labyrinth tool, finger meditation tool. Also, you mentioned uh, the app, Labyrinth Journeys. That's a free app. Uh, you can just download it. I really love it. And it has music or not. You can turn the music on or off. It, it also, when you trace your finger, you know, a, a color path appears. Uh, and then when you get the center, the, the six petals in the center, 
uh, light up. It's really beautiful. Yeah, I've, I've used that and uh, I found it very peaceful and very helpful. And even on that little one, even though there's a blue little path, I have found myself losing my way <laughs> because I don't make the proper turn. And every time there is this invitation just to return with mercy and grace and know that God is still with me. So I would absolutely encourage people to go to both of those places. And you have a book, Walking a Sacred Path, that I would recommend. Um, and obviously there are resources on your website and uh, you'll have another one coming eventually too, right? Well, uh, that'll be my fourth. Actually, the second one, let me highlight that as well. It's called The Sacred Path Companion. Okay. And it's more or less a workbook to help people reflect on their lives. And then it talks about how to use the labyrinth for grief, how to use it to work with critical voices, oh. uh, how, to, how to work with the monkey mind, uh, things like that. So it's more of an applications book that I think... For beginners, especially, that would be very helpful. I need to go get that. I didn't know that was there. That'll yeah. be next on yeah, my list. Yeah, that's been out a while. And then the finger meditation uh, sand labyrinth, which is great for kids, by the way. <laughs> so, but that is a sensate experience. And so I would say for folks, just give it a try. Give it a try, but be open. Uh, be, be, let your mind be open. Let your heart be open. And it's a great place to pray. It really is. And if you're not sure how to use the labyrinth, well, then... Go in, find your natural pace, and as I say, you know, write a letter to God. Dear God, it's been a while. <laughs> <laughs> Long time listener, first time caller. No, <laughs> yeah, right, right. Yeah. Well, Lauren, thank you so much for joining. This was a blessing and an honor. I appreciate your time and openness. Well, thank you very much. Sure, I'll look forward to hearing more about it. Thank you, Phil. Hey friends, Phil here again. Before you go, I just want to say thank you so much for joining us for this conversation. Please be sure to go check out Veriditas. Consider downloading that Labyrinth, uh, Finger Labyrinth app. See if there's a labyrinth close to you that you can visit and you can find those links in the show notes. And then also, if you enjoyed this episode, we do a lot of these interviews at Rua Space. We do a lot of teaching on practices, guided practices, live events on Facebook. So there's a lot to offer. We encourage you to go check that out. And then also, if you are able, if you're on your iPhone, go ahead and click over to that Rua Space podcast and leave us a review. That is a blessing for us and it helps us to expand this ministry. So friends, until next time, grace and peace be with you.